especially to all the new people who have joined us tonight, thanks to Robert and Simon. At Big Tent USA, we put democracy above partisanship. We're building a women-led voter coalition to protect the guardrails of democracy, ensure government accountability and transparency, and increase civic participation. We are thrilled to have Robert Hubble and Simon Rosenberg, or as we call them, democracy's dream team. We wanna thank Jessica Craven and Sarah O'Neill for making this evening's conversation happen. Robert Hubble is a lawyer by trade, an optimistic citizen, a realist, and a voice of intelligence and reason. He is the founder and writer of a must subscribe to Substack called Today's Edition Newsletter. For many of us on this call, starting our day off with Robert Substack is grounding and reassuring, and his wisdom and humility have gotten us through some dark times. Simon Rosenberg is a political strategist, a data-driven thought leader, the debunker of the red wave theory in 2022, and also an optimist. Like Robert, he is the founder and writer of another must-subscribe-to-substack called Hopium Chronicles. Simon is the queller of our anxieties and fears, or as the Atlantic rightly dubbed him, he is as much a therapist as a strategist. Please check out our live transcript if you need it and put your questions in the chat for Robert and Simon, and I will try to get to as many of them as I can. Robert is going to start off tonight's conversation. Thank you, Robert and Simon, for coming to Big Tent USA. Thank you, everyone. And I noticed um, a number of readers in the uh, Zoom grid. So thanked, thanks to all of my readers uh, who showed up tonight to hear uh, what I have to say, as well as the other speakers. I'm, as always, honored and humbled. Um, I'm going to speak for 10 minutes. I've got a timer here going. Uh, but the thesis of my talk is, what would we do differently? And I want you to hold that in mind until the end of my remarks. Before I begin, I do want to say I'm honored to be here as a guest of Big Tent USA, and particularly to share the podium with Simon Rosenberg, who is a voice of reason who gives me strength and hope. He's going to speak to you in a moment about the fact-based, data-driven analysis of the state of our democracy and what we need to do to win in 2024. I'm going to speak to you really from the roots of my newsletter about how we can remain confident and realistically hopeful in an information environment that is designed to alarm us. Now, let me preface everything I'm going to say, because I'm going to talk about some hard truths, is that I believe Joe Biden's going to win in 2024 by a margin of 10 million votes or more, and at least 74 votes in the Electoral College. So let's start by recognizing the challenge that we face today. The challenge is we have to keep our wits about us and remain motivated and hopeful and enthusiastic as we head into 2024. Why? Because morale matters. Just ask any leader of any organization and they will tell you that keeping the morale up of their organization is critical to achieving success. But you know that. The challenge is maintaining that sense of hope, and enthusiasm in the face of the incessant onslaught of made-for-TV polling and false equivalencies in the media. In a media world where eyeballs and impressions and clicks define success, truth and balance are not only irrelevant, they are antithetical to maximizing revenue. So there you have it. The media and social media are structurally designed to frighten us, to emphasize drama, conflict, division, and fear, because they know that millions of years of evolution have fine-tuned our survival instincts to be on guard when those factors are present. They manipulate our emotions to make us look, react, and come back for more. So let's all do this. Let's recognize that fact that we're in an information environment designed to frighten us, to motivate us to come back. Let's put that, let's say that's an interesting sociological observation. Put that in a box and set it aside. Let's also recognize that facts still matter, at least to enough people to make a difference. Don't consume yourself with the fact that 
John F. Kennedy is allegedly still alive, according to the MAGA extremists, and he's going to be Trump's running mate, and that Joe Biden runs a pedophilia ring at the behest of lizard people who live under the earth or something like that. If you want to know if facts still matter, I urge you to go talk to your friends and neighbors. How many of them were Biden voters in 2020 who are going to vote for Trump in 2024? None of them. Conversely, how many of them were Trump voters in 2020 who were thinking about or will vote for Joe Biden? Some of them. And that is all it is going to take in an evenly divided electorate for us to win. The other thing we have to recognize is that disinformation is the point. Steve Bannon said the strategy of Republicans was to flood the zone with disinformation. Why? Because it causes confusion. It dispirits us. It causes us to tilt at windmills of disinformation when we should be registering voters and helping them to get out the vote. So again, let's recognize that fact. Disinformation is a strategy. That's a sociological phenomenon of the time in which we live. Let's put it in a box and set it aside. And it brings me no joy to make this next point, which is that the media is complicit. The revenue model of the media of frightening people into coming back overlaps with a disinformation model which is intended to create false drama and conflict and division and fear. So for all the fact-checking that some of the media does, the old adage still applies. If it bleeds, it leads. So let's start talking about the solution. This is not my saying, but it's, it's true. Action is the antidote to anxiety. Sitting alone in your home, stewing in anxiety and fear is counterproductive. And it's, it's wasteful. We need you on the front lines. We need your passion and commitment. We need you to act, do, lead, speak, write, post, call, and repeat. Every one of those actions will make you feel better, but more importantly, they'll help Democrats win in 2024. And community matters. The fact that you're here as part of this community and perhaps as the part of other communities is one way to get help get us out of our own skins and stop stewing in this disinformation environment and recognize that we are part of a grassroots organiz- uh, movement across America that includes tens of millions of Americans. Simon and I see meetings like this every week. This is, I think, my third or fourth presentation this week. And every time I see groups like this, I'm uplifted because I know that this is just one of thousands or tens of thousands of committed, passionate Americans. I want to just say one thing about perspective because I'm at the three and a half minute mark in my time left. And that is we need to keep perspective in all of this. And when I emphasize perspective, sometimes my readers write to me and say, oh, you're saying that nothing matters in this grand perspective of billions of years of a universe. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that it's difficult for us to properly understand the scale and relative seriousness of our challenges today unless we put them in, in perspective. We have survived civil war and world war. We've survived shameful periods of enslavement and Jim Crow laws. We survived two decades where the wealthy elite flirted with Adolf Hitler, where tens of thousands of Ku Klux Klansmen, Klansmen walked down Pennsylvania Avenue. We survived that and more. And we're going to survive Trump and MAGA extremism. So let me get to my my point. I asked you, what would we do differently? So let's just assume that all the bad news that the media is heaping on us is true. Suppose for a moment, Trump is in fact 10 points ahead. He's not. Let's suppose that, suppose that Joe Biden is too frail to serve. He's not. Let's suppose that Americans care more about Joe Biden's age than they do about Trump's treason and betrayal, and that youth and minorities have lost their enthusiasm for the Democratic Party. Let's assume all of that is true, which it's not. Let's ask yourself then, if it were true, what would you do differently? Would you give up? 
Would you curl into a ball and pull the covers over your head and just say, oh my God, it's horrible and it's over? Absolutely not. We, none of us would give up on the greatest experiment in, the history, in, in democracy in the history of the world. If all of that were true, we would continue to do what we're doing, but we would do more of it. We would do more organizing and donating and defending democracy with every ounce of effort that we can muster. And heaven forbid, heaven forbid that Donald Trump wins. Many pundits tell us that if that happens, our democracy is over. It's not if I have anything to say about it. And the question is, what will you do? Would you, would you give up on our democracy? I wouldn't. And I hope you wouldn't either. So take that worst case scenario and say, even if that happened, we wouldn't do anything differently. So here's my point. Since all the bad news and the disinformation and the ultimate catastrophe wouldn't change anything about what you're doing, then let's focus on what we're doing and try to set aside that noise, that disinformation that is designed to manipulate us and confuse us and dispirit, dispirit us and focus on action, which is what you're doing, which is why I feel better about our prospects in 2023 and 2024. And as I have frequently said in my newsletter, we have every reason to be hopeful but no reason to be complacent. My time's up. Thank you very much. And I look forward to your questions. Well done. Wow, Robert. I think you came in under 10 minutes. <laughs> All right. I'm going to turn, uh, turn it over to Simon now, and then we'll get into uh, the Q&A. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Kitty. Uh, Robert's a hard act to follow, but I'll do, do my best. Um, it's really great to be here with him with all of you. And I just want to start by saying thank you to everybody who's here tonight and all the work that you do. Uh, we're making a big difference together and we have to, it's really uh, my most important message tonight is just thank you for what you're doing for your country and to make sure that freedom and democracy prevails here and everywhere. Um, I want to start by just um, something I wrote today and I'm sorry, I'm, my throat's a little wobbly tonight, but that and my most important message to you tonight is that Joe Biden is a good president. The country is better off. Uh, the Democratic Party is strong. They have Trump. And I would so much rather be us than them. I mean, I think that's my sort of bottom line message is that as a strategist, when you move your chess pieces around and try to figure out how things move, our path for victory next year is very clear, right? Our president's done a good job. We've got a strong argument to make and they have Trump and try to, you know, game out his victory next year. It's going to be, it's very difficult to see how given everything that's going to happen to him over the next 13 months is going to continue to weigh him down. So I start off tonight, very optimistic about our opportunities in 2024. And let me just go back to 2022 for a second to sort of set the predicate for the discussion where we are today and what might happen next year. In 2022, we had a remarkable election. Uh, we did far better than anybody anticipated. Um, we uh, defied history in many ways. And it was the third consecutive election in a row that we had outperformed people's expectations. What happened in 2022, in my mind, is there were really two elections. There was a bluer election inside the battleground states and a redder election outside. Inside the battleground, because of all of you and the money that you raised and the volunteers, the things that you did to write postcards and text and call and canvas, we actually uh, outperformed 2020 in seven of the major battleground states and sort of the expanded battleground in Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, <clears throat> Minnesota, Michigan, New Hampshire, and Pennsylvania. We actually did better than 2020. So a big chunk of the country actually moved towards us. In, in 2022, meaning that those states and the battleground in general has gotten harder for the Republicans. The hill is harder to climb because it's the third consecutive election now where we've litigated MAGA and the Democrats and we've come out on top. But I think the scale of the victory in some ways has been masked over the last year. We got to 59% in Colorado, 57% in Pennsylvania, 55% in Michigan, 54% in New Hampshire. I mean, these would have been amazing results 
in a good year, in a blue wave year, and in a year that was supposed to be bad for us, we really pushed uh, our performance to the upper end of what was possible. In the early vote, which is where there was evidence of the grassroots muscle that we all have, you know, we were able to make the early vote was better for us in 2022 than 2018 and 2020, two elections where we did much better. So the performance of the Democratic Party in these battleground states was extraordinary. And it's because the money that our candidates had, we outraised the Republicans by four, five, six to one in most of these major races. We had the biggest campaigns we've ever had, the biggest grassroots operations. And so all the work you did fit into the biggest campaigns we've ever had. We're able to control the information environment, something Robert talks about, and then push our performance to the upper end of what was possible. This all happened after Dobbs, obviously. A combination of Dobbs and the January 6th committee and the Uvalde shooting created this spring of 2022 that pushed us, that gave us this huge opportunity that we had. But outside the battleground, um, we fell back in New York and California and Florida and Texas. And it's a reminder, it's an admonition that they're still louder than we are. They still have much, they have a, a much greater capacity to control the information environment every day and to push the media, as Robert talked about, into places like the red wave that they shouldn't go to. And it's why we have to both, as we go forward, be focused on all this campaign work that we do, the money and the, and the volunteerism, but we also have to get louder. We And I tell the story that you know, when I worked in the war room 31 years ago, it's hard to believe it was that long ago. Um, you know, we think in our mind's eye of the war room as like 20 sweaty kids drinking Red Bulls, you know, producing TikTok videos. But we need to think of the war room now as two to three million proud patriots who love their country, who are spreading positive messages about the Democratic Party and Joe Biden and America to counter this right wing noise machine and all the negative sentiment that they pump into our discourse every day. And I can talk in the Q&A a little bit more about that. But I think what's really important, the most important thing that I can share with you tonight is that this heightened performance that we saw in 2022 has carried over to 2023. We now know from the Daily Coast's uh, tracker of special elections that in 27 special elections all over the country, uh, we've outperformed our 2020 numbers by 7.6%, almost eight points. That's an extraordinary thing, right? And remember, we won 2020 by four and a half points. And we're running in race after race all across the country. We're running almost eight points ahead of that. It's an amazing achievement. 538 just published a bigger analysis with more races showing that we're averaging 10 points in these races above the partisan lean of the district. So high single digits by two different measures in races all over the country. And many of you who worked in Wisconsin know that we won that Wisconsin Supreme Court seat by 11 points, we just got to 57 in Ohio. We took away Colorado Springs and Jacksonville, two of the largest Republican held cities in the country this year. This has been an extraordinary year. And so even though some of the national polling, which I think is really struggling to capture the dynamic in an election where some states are moving blue and other states are moving red, national polling doesn't do a good job at capturing that because it just can't get to that level of granular accuracy. The measures that Tom Bonnier and I sort of developed during 2022 to sort of understand where we were are all pointing in the right direction for us. I would so much rather be us than them. This is not predictive about what's going to happen next year. A million things could happen between now. But my God, you would much rather be winning special elections all across the country by eight points than losing by eight points, right? And so we have a lot of reason to be very optimistic about where we are. We were able to do well in 2022 with Joe Biden, you know, at about 42% approval. It's about where he is now. And even though, you know, the national polls, we had that crazy Washington Post um, ABC poll today, one of the most important weekly tracks that comes out every week, the Economist, YouGov, one of the highest quality, biggest large sample polls, had Biden up five points today. And we also know that last week, CNN released the largest sample poll of New Hampshire done so far. And in that poll, Biden was up 12 points over Trump. So there is a lot of data that's available to us that is not the Washington Post ABC poll that suggests that we're doing really well and we're kicking ass. And the reason, in my view, that this is happening is because of all of you and the grassroots groups, this grassroots uprising that has taken place all across the country or regular folks, right, have decided they're not going to let their democracy slip away. 
and you're now spending five, 10 hours a week, whatever it is, doing something, right? Helping in Virginia, helping in Ohio, whatever it is, you just keep have to, as Robert said, we just have to keep doing more of it. Because I think that this activity that we're generating is showing up in actual campaigns. We can measure all this stuff. And we now, I think, have this superpower in the Democratic Party that we didn't have before, which is all of you. And I actually had a meeting at the DNC yesterday to talk about how we make sure that as the Biden campaign takes off, that there's an understanding about this new muscle that we have that we didn't used to have. We're stronger today as a party, I think, than in any time that, since I've been in democratic politics. I've been in it for more than 30 years. I did a podcast with James Carville, who I worked for in 1992, a few weeks ago. And we talked about how as the generational wheel turns and Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and the Clintons sort of yield to the next generation, that this next generation, the you know, the Gretchen Whitmers and the Gavin Newsom's and the Kamala Harris's and whoever your list is of people, this is the strongest group of democratic leaders that we've seen in our lifetime in the business. And so we are very, very strong now. We're winning. Our president's done a good job. They have gone all sorts of crazy, right? And so for those of you who are hopeful that democracy is going to prevail, that pro-democracy forces are going to prevail, I feel really good about where we are. And I've even written a memo saying that I think it's possible for us to win by 10 points next year. Robert and I agree on this, and I've shown in actual data because I think that right now the Republicans are abandoning space that we can go take. We took away Colorado Springs. We took away Jacksonville. We took away the Wisconsin Supreme Court seat. We have to be in a growth mindset, an expansion mindset, because if you don't go and seek that stuff, it's like man on the moon, right? If you don't, if you don't have a plan for growth and expansion, you won't grow and expand. And this year has been a growth and expansion year, and we've got to keep that going into next year. So I want to just share with you that just looking at the data, being in the game, Right. Since Dobbs, we just keep winning and they keep losing. Um, and I think that I, I would much rather be us than them as we head into 2024. And my final point is that just remember that, as Robert said, your group as the 3,500 members, all the remarkable things you do. There are hundreds and hundreds of other groups like this all across the country that he and I speak to. You're in a large community, millions of people who are like you, taking time out of their lives to make sure their democracy doesn't slip away. As Robert said, this has been the most inspirational part of my entire political career, being with all of you. It's why I keep doing what I do every day, because I know that we're winning. And I know that the other end of this, our democracy is going to be stronger than it's ever been. And so it's great to be here with all of you. Look forward to the questions tonight. Thank you so much, Simon and Robert. Okay, so let's get into it. I just want to say that the chat is all there's so many comments about how both your substacks are, you know, a daily ritual and very important to everybody. So can you guys just, before we get into all the other, the political stuff, just give us two minutes of why you started your substacks. Um, Robert, I'm going to let you go first. I have three adult daughters. I assured them before Trump was elected that he would not be elected, that the adults in the room would prevent that from happening. Uh, when he was elected, um, my daughters were devastated, and uh, I'll spare you the details, but as a, a way for my wife and I to uplift and support our daughters, I started writing an email to them every night. After a couple of months, I put today's edition in the email that went to five family members. February 2017, it was shared with uh, three non-family members, and it just grew from there. Um, it got up to about 20,000 subscribers on Constant Contact. So I was sending a free newsletter um, for which I was, I was paying thousands of dollars a month. So I went over on to Substack, uh, be, you know, frankly, because Heather Cox Richardson was there that for no other reason. I knew it. My readers knew it. So I went over there and it has grown. Um, I never intended for it to get bigger or to be a force, but because it has, I now realize I have some duty to make it be a force for good. For example, helping to promote Big Tent USA. So that's why I'm here. You are um, a force for good. Simon. He is. He is. Um, you know, I ran, I've been in democratic politics since, um, you know, I started really in the 1980s and, but I went full-time in 1992 with Clinton. 
And I ran my own think tank for 27 years. It was a political organization, a think tank called NVN. And it was originally, Clinton actually helped me get it off the ground in 1996. Um, and originally we supported uh, Clinton style Democrats, you know, modern on social issues and modern on economic issues. And we helped a lot of people get elected all over the country for a long time. But I, uh, and then we became a think tank in 2005. So my audience for my work has been a, you know, a couple hundred people basically in Washington. <laughs> it's like a private think tank for the Democratic Party. We did strategy around uh, around three big issues, around three big changes, around globalization, changes in demography, changes in media. And we helped Democratic politicians understand them and then win in these changing environments. But I think over the last few years that my... Um, at NDN, which was a C3, C4, I, it was no longer fitting for what I needed to do. I needed to be more aggressive, more partisan, frankly, more engaged with all of you. And during, and I'll just finish quickly, is that in 2022, last year, when my analysis about the election kind of went viral, I mean, I had 100, 100 million Twitter views in the last three weeks of the election in 2022. Um, I got connected to all of you during that process, and my organization wasn't designed to speak to all of you. And so I changed. I'm no longer young. I'm not a young guy anymore. And I changed what I did. I changed my audience from a couple hundred people in the White House and in Congress and a few dozen you know, reporters to you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of just regular everyday citizens who are going out there kicking ass for their country. And so I built my Substack to try to help all of you be better at being big citizens and making sure our democracy doesn't slip away. And frankly, it's been far more fun and more enjoyable and more rewarding than I ever thought it was going to be. But like Robert, I have this deep obligation now where when I get up in the morning, I write in the mornings, not in the evenings. I, I work my ass off to really give the best product I possibly can every day because I know that all of you need this information, need the uplift, need the material, need the sustenance to go out and do the work you're going to do. And so it's been, it's a great question. I haven't really been asked about this very much, but I, and also Substack is a very powerful platform and easy to use. And so it's been very rewarding because of the engagement I've had with everybody out there all across the country. I, I agree. I, I subscribe to both your newsletters. Uh, I pay for them because I really appreciate the amount of work and effort that you put into them. Um, Jessica Craven is another newsletter I love. And of course, Heather Cox Richardson as well. There's so many good ones, but um, I really appreciate both of you for sharing your stories. So, okay, let's get into it. Um, can we do a little bit of a media analysis? Uh, Robert, uh, you, you know, I were talking before the call about the last three weeks and just seems like it's just been worse than usual. Um, there was the Washington Post ABC poll, which was completely faulty and they published it anyways. And there was a ter some really bad false equivalency between Trump and Biden. So can you guys pick your most maddening story, media story from the last let's say two, three weeks, just why? Well, let me just very briefly say, um, I think this is a series of stories, but when there was the death threat against General Milley, the threat to shut down NBC and MSNBC, that received almost no coverage in the mainstream, uh, the major media. I try not to use mainstream media. Um, and I think that that, it exemplifies the false equivalency that the corporate owners of major media outlets have forced on their outlets. Unfortunately, they've fallen uh, in, in an unfair comparative. And that is, on the one hand, you have someone who's who's plotted and attempted a coup, someone who's stolen defense secrets, uh, someone who attempted to overturn elections, who's been indicted four, four times, who's been found guilty in a civil trial of uh, serial or sexual abuse. And all of those things are counterbalanced by what? By Joe Biden's old. And those two things are not equivalent. It is fair to talk about the candidate's age. Joe Biden will be 82 uh, when he's re-inaugurated. Uh, Trump is not materially different. If you want to talk about the age of the candidates and the health, talk about it. 
but talk about the relevant comparisons. Don't say attempted coup equals Joe Biden's age. And I cannot understand why, except I just explained why, but why journalists that I respect and who have integrity and intelligence somehow hold those two things as equivalent when they are not. And I think we should just simply recognize that that is a ham-fisted, failed effort to try to create some sort of faux balance uh, in the news by resorting to false equivalencies. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say that. Look, there's an incredible normalization um, machine and bias in our, our in the media. Um, you know, the media has become complicit to sort of normalizing this extraordinary situation that the country's in right now. Um, and I think for me, what was a little bit weird about the last few weeks was that it felt red wavy. I mean, I, I felt a little bit like the red wave was returning a little bit. And all these things that, you know, in 2022, it's important for people to realize that the, the declaration that the red wave had returned in the fall was not just a miss. It was the opposite of what happened. Right. It was the most significant as somebody I grew up at ABC News and I worked in the media business before I went into politics um, it was the most significant, in my view, sort of, you know, political commentariat failure in the modern era of American politics. And there's been virtually no media reflection on what happened and what it means for us going forward. The only serious things that have happened was the New York Times did a remarkable piece that unfortunately ran on Christmas Day. So it wasn't seen by many people going through what happened with the red wave because the Times was a contributor to the false impression that was created. And then the other thing that happened is that Nate Silver is no longer employed by 538. And there was consequence. ABC gets credit. The New York Times and ABC get credit for having sort of created some kind of consequence for the mistakes that happened. But most of the rest of the folks in the media are still playing the same game. I mean, I have to give the Washington Post a lot of credit. That poll that came out this week they did something that Tom Bonnier and I have been recommending that if you have a poll that you feel is bad, then if you're going to release it, you have to acknowledge it and explain why. And the Post did that. This was a huge step forward, in my view, towards media accountability and recognizing. And they actually explained in detail what they thought was wrong with the poll. It was kind of an extraordinary thing. So I was, I'm, I, what has happened though, the good news is that. I've been pushing this data about the elections and the success of the elections for months. And I have been very, very aggressive with national reporters in the last few weeks. And we now have had a lot of stories talking about, hey, this poll may be bad, but you know, in the New York Times today, right, there was a major Reed Epstein piece. That's my bulldog. I apologize. He'll be made quiet in a second. We'll throw some food at him. But um, Reed Epstein had a piece in the New York Times today saying Biden's numbers may be down, but look at this. Democrats are kicking ass all over the country, right? So we're starting to, we're able to get this stuff into the discourse, but it was disappointing to me to see the kind of herd again assemble around, you know, what was obviously a ridiculous poll. And so we still have a lot of work to do. It's one of the reasons I fight this poll game, because this stuff is red. It does influence people's understanding of, of what's happening in our politics. And we have to, we can't let it go uncontested. I mean, the basic premise of the war room in 92 was any attack uncontested sticks. And so I'm I am very aggressive, as you all seen on Twitter and also in my Substack, about challenging sort of false conventional wisdom around data in our politics right now. Can I just jump in here and say, first of all, Simon, good for you for pounding on the post to admit that when they have a bad poll, they describe it. But um, and this has a happy ending, but but let's recognize that what happened at hundreds or thousands of news outlets around America, and I heard this from my readers, is that the headline yeah. of the Washington Post poll was the sum and substance of stories on, on local newscasts and local newspapers with no explanation of what you did in your substack, which, as you know, I then incorporated into yeah. mine. And, you know, readers were grateful that you deconstructed or explicated the poll and explained it. And I think you and derivatively me helped people feel better about a hair on fire 
pole. Um, and there may even have been more to say about normal curves and tails and random samples and those kinds of things, but that's probably too much. We need to continue to explain to people that polling at this point in a presidential election cycle has very limited utility. It can be used by professionals who understand what the what the underlying data means to shape messages, and that's about it. Yeah, if I can just make one last point, is that the um, it's really important to recognize that no nothing is predictive. No one can predict the future. <laughs> I mean, anyone who claims they can predict anything, you should have be suspect of them, right? What we can do is we can make guesses based on the information in front of us about what is the likely thing to happen, right? And right now we're 13 months away from the election. So the polling is telling us about where things are today, but things are going to change. I mean, our campaign hasn't kicked in yet. Their campaign, they're fully engaged on their side. So I remain deeply optimistic. And as I did during the red wave battle last year, you know, there's, there's a lot of data showing that things are fine. <laughs> There's other data showing things are not are fine. Not everything's pointing in the same direction. And, and I recognize that it's now part of my job to help, unfortunately, spend a lot of time you know, dealing with this because it does freak people out. And the media is in a weird place on this. That poll, I just want to say, I talked to ABC News after the poll came out. And I told them that I would like them to do research to find out if that's the only poll ever taken where Donald Trump is above 50% since he declared in 2015 to show this was not just an outlier this was an olympian level outlier right i'm almost certain that it's the only poll ever taken where trump has been over 50 percent. and going back to this idea this normalization bias and this normalization machine of the media you would have to believe to believe that donald trump could get to 52 percent would mean that he had to gain seven points or six points from five points from 2020 and that's not possible. It's not possible. It was implausible. The data was implausible. They shouldn't have published it. And it was a huge error. But at least we did get that Washington Post correction. It was a step forward. Um, there are some folks in the chat who would like you guys to write an op-ed about polls. Um, so, you know, just think about that offline. And very quickly, does it help if people like me and everyone on this call rights to the journalist or to the paper? Does that make a difference? Or should we put our energies into getting out in the vote in Virginia, which I want to go to next? Yeah, I, I'll just start, Robert. Is that, look, as he said, and he did a great job of this, we can't get distracted, right? I mean, there's so much stuff and noise in the system every day. I mean, I joke that I don't ever want to see another picture of Marjorie Taylor Greene the rest of my life, right? We already know who she is. It doesn't help. And I think we dwell too much in the areas of concern. And what I say to my community is that two thirds of our communication together should be positive and celebratory of our successes and about America and one third should be about them. We spend too much time talking about them. We have to spend more time talking about us and we have to tell our story and so, and do our work. And I think we collectively, it's like a, you know, it's like rubbernecking in, a, in an accident on a highway. We spend too much time looking at the crash car when we should be, you know, doing the work to in Virginia and other places. And so I think the other thing is that I will be providing and Robert's been help, helping with this is that I provide, you know, the alternative data that we just need to be spreading through our networks to show that there isn't a trend in one direction that in fact, the trend is, the truth is, if you look at all the political data right now, it's remarkably, unbelievably positive for us. And and so I'm exact. I think we are exactly where we need to be in terms of what you know, winning this election by a large margin next year. And I recognize that's not what you're hearing, but we have, um, you know, we have. There's a, you know, this is a thing where now I think the DNC and the Biden campaign, who are loath to get involved in this stuff, are becoming aware that they're going to need to sort of help all of us navigate this because it does. It creates a false impression and we can't we can't let it we have to contest it more aggressively let me just add a 10 second gloss if you want to write something write a letter to the editor of a local newspaper they are desperate for content and reader engagement they will publish well-written rational reasonable letters and you will influence people at that level great Thank you so much. Okay, let's uh, let's turn to Virginia. Uh, this 
this, obviously, this is a big election in Virginia. They elect their entire Senate and their House of Delegates and a bunch of local elections. Big 10 has been lucky enough to have two great organizations come, the Center for Common Ground and We the People for Education. So you've got five minutes, guys. So give me the sense of where we're at in Virginia and what we need to do to make sure that democracy wins in and women win in uh, November. I'm going to take defer, this. I'm going to defer okay. to you, Simon. You're, so, you're the political yeah, yeah. consultant. I'm the political, I'm I'm the political nerd. Um, so <laughs> the good news is today there was a poll that came out from a college in Virginia that showed us up 40, 37 in the raw vote, you know, for um, this, the, the legislature. I think that's, that's great. That's where, you know, that's, I think that's, if we, if that happens, we probably flip the house and we keep the Senate. Right. So I think that's encouraging, but you know, there were, it was only 77% of the voters had made up their mind. And so this thing is very soft. It is very early. I mean, the early vote is very early in Virginia. Right. And, and one of the things I just want to say to everybody is that something has happened in recent years with the early vote that is very important for us to understand. And I have this theory of the case where I, I argue that we need now to be voting on day one and have a vote on day one mentality in every election. And the reason why is that if you're in a campaign, when somebody votes, you get you get every night from the registrar, you get the list of everybody who voted that day, not how they voted, but that they voted. And then you take those people off, their, off the GOTV rolls. And because, and so then you don't call them, you don't text them, you don't use money and energy to go to them. And the faster that our prime voters vote in, in an early vote, the quicker we get to use our machinery to go reach lower propensity voters. And so voting early actually increases overall Democratic turnout and or voting on day one. And part of what's happening now is that if you're going to start, we have to start having a mindset as Democrats that we can win elections in the first week, not on the final day. It's part of what happened in 2022. We won some of those states in the first week of the of the early vote, not in the final day. If you're going to do any work in Virginia or give any money, you need to do it right now. It, it matters much more today than it does three weeks from now, because the earlier that we're moving people and taking them off the voter rolls, the quicker we can get into lower propensity voters and increase our turnout, and make it more likely we win. So I've been, I've done a lot of I'm doing an event next week. I, I, I'm close by to Virginia. Um, I feel good about where we are, but we have a lot of work to do and they have a lot of money. Yeah, Youngkin's really point a lot to that race. Okay, we've got to get to 2024 because um, obviously there's a lot of questions about it. So the first thing, there are a lot of questions about uh, third party candidates, no labels. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, John F. Kennedy Jr., Cornell West. So maybe it's a couple things. Maybe it's the, what does the third party do to polling with Trump and uh, Biden, a uh, Trump and Biden race. And then I think also, um, Robert, maybe for you to, to talk about how we counter, um, you know, what these third party candidates could bring into the race. Uh, so maybe it's two parts. Robert, do you want to take it first and talk to us about your thinking around third party candidates and no labels? Oh, you're muted, Robert. Third party candidates in general um, and no labels in particular. I, I am like everyone else worried about this. Um, and I have been struggling with, with what to do or to say. And the best I can come up with is what I have done on a personal level. Um, we just have to be unstinting and speak in words of one syllable about what third party candidates are. They are stalking horses for Trump, a vote for it. Any third party candidate, no matter how reasonable, how progressive, how pro-democracy, it just doesn't matter. If you're asking us to vote for someone other than Joe Biden, you're asking us to vote for Trump. And that may hurt some people's feelings. It, 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 it may strike them as harsh. I've had that conversation in the last week um, with a group that wanted me to promote their sort of you know, pro-democracy, liberal, progressive agenda. And I said, I'm happy to do that if you can answer one question for me. 
do you support Joe Biden and oppose Donald Trump? And if you can't answer that with a one word answer, I'm not going to help your group. And I think we just we have to say that to friends and neighbors and complete strangers in the gas station when we're putting gas into our car. Um, I have been shocked on um, some of these calls uh, earlier on where some people said, oh, you know, uh, this whole third party, no labels thing seems like a good way to go. You know, we need to get out of this binary conflicty type situation and start searching for solutions. And it, to their credit, everyone on the call jumped on that person and said, no, 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 that is only an effort to elect Trump. I think we just have to be that clear about it. That's, I mean, it's not anything deep, but it's what I've come up with and what I'm doing at this point in my life. So here's how I think about all this. Um, first of all, the most important, when we talk about this to it, to people in our communities, the most important third party, splinter party, rogue party effort in America is the never Trump or never MAGA movement. Um, it has had an enormous impact on our politics. What Liz Cheney did last election cycle and Bill Crystal and the Bulwark and Lincoln Project and all the, the very courageous former Republicans who've stayed in politics and are encouraging other Republicans not to vote Republican this stuff has had an enormous, it made a huge impact in 2022. I mean, we know this because it not only at a national level, but in states like Michigan and Arizona and in Nevada and in Colorado, there were huge local elected Republicans who split from the party and went over to the Democrats. And so it's important to recognize that there is a very powerful, influential, successful third party, rogue party splinter movement in America, and they're aligned with us. And it's really important to say that and they're helping us win and they deserve a lot of credit for what they've done. I've gotten, I've become very good friends with Bill Crystal. I never thought in my life I would. And I tell whenever I'm with them, any of them, I tell them how grateful I am at their courage for having challenged their own party. I couldn't imagine doing that inside the Democratic Party. The second thing is at a tactical level, I think we have to be better at making these movements, these the third parties of small and inconsequential as opposed to big. We can't give them power they don't have. And I think that by us spending so much time talking about them, by making them feel powerful and arguing that they are powerful, we're giving them power that they actually don't have themselves. And I, my just general recommendation would be is we should stop spending time worrying about them because the answer, the solution is we have to build up Joe Biden. The answer to all of this is that we have the only thing you can really do is just keep building up Joe Biden, you know, as a way of minute making it harder and harder for them to have a possibility of making an impact. But when we do talk about them, we have to be, as Robert said, unrelenting. And I will just tell you, I know a lot of the no labels people. I've worked with them in my career. And what's been shocking to me is how much no labels is built upon a mountain of lies. I mean, just bald faced, unbelievable rancid lies. And these are serious, once serious people who are saying things like, well, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans are the same. That, I mean, that's at the core of the no labels, you know, uh, charter or whatever that thing is they put out. And I didn't even read anything after that. Right? It was in the first paragraph because the whole thing is based. And so we have to be, I think we. it's really important in our business in general, as Robert often talks about, to not let worry and concern overwhelm us. And, and the answer to all of this is we have to build up Joe Biden and the Democrats. And uh, and that's the most constructive work we can do. I, I want to say one other thing about Virginia. Here's, I, I often don't use this term, but the thing I'm worried about, I don't like to say worried or concerned, is I'm worried that Youngkin becomes VP, not that he runs and replaces Trump. If, if Youngkin has a big election in Virginia, he and almost Joe, if you think about Trump, right, who does he pick for VP? Who helps him? To me, there's only one person who helps him. It's Youngkin after he wins Virginia because he becomes a way station for moderate Republicans to stay with the ticket. He becomes the guy that all the big donors can trust if they give their money. And so, you know, we have to remove that as a possibility by winning in Virginia. I think it's really, really critical. I think that Youngkin victorious becomes very dangerous for us in 2024, because 
he can help, you know, Trump understands, if you look at what they're doing by going to Michigan, they understand they have to grow. They're, they're, they're losing. They know they're losing. They know they've lost votes. They're trying to grow their coalition. Youngkin is the only person, in my view, that would be successful at potentially creating a way station for wandering Republicans to stay with the ticket. And so this is another reason why Virginia really matters so much. That's, that's I, such I'm a good a, point. I'm not a political analyst, but let me just say counterintuitively that anyone that Trump should pick for rational reasons because it would help him, he won't pick for exactly that reason. He does not want to be in a situation where he's dependent or beholden to anyone. I assume he will pick some nobody who he can ramrod over like he did with Mike Pence. Yeah, but I think the point is really important because um, when Andrea Miller from Center for Common Ground came to Big Tent this, this week, she said the thing about him is when he doesn't want to answer a question, he won't. So he's not committed to, he said he would sign a 15-week abortion ban, but when asked about a six, he just doesn't talk about it, just moves on. So he's he's dangerous in that way. Um, so he's I appreciate religious, that point, Simon. He's, yeah, he's a religious extremist. I mean, we have to recognize that he's a Christian warrior and and i you know he look he wears his vest and he looks like you know a regular guy but he isn't and you know this is i i'm not there isn't much that worries me about 2024 to be honest i feel really good about where we are Youngkin worries me and and we and we need to get this done in virginia in the next six weeks okay well you'll be so happy to know that there's so many people on this call who are writing postcards and letters to yeah. virginia right now we've got some great opportunities to write letters and postcards um, with Big Tent. So just email um, activism at bigtentusa.org and we'll send you some letters. Um, okay, well, we are getting close to our time. This has gone so fast. Um, I do wanna end on a positive note. Um, so I thought we could, well, okay, no, I do wanna end on a positive note, but so I wanted to talk about the coalition that you, guys are building and in our small way we're trying to build too and everyone on this call is building so talk to us about our strengths our weaknesses and give us some marching orders for 2024 please let me go first and then i might sign off i have i'm managing another zoom call right now as admitting <laughs> people but, but let me actually um, answer your question with just what I would say is an anecdote. Um, you know, every day I run into people in my life in various ways, and somehow the fact that I write a newsletter, I've got to excuse myself, I've got to not go to a dinner, you know, it, it, the, the, the newsletter comes up and people always say, oh, well, uh, what is it? You know, I'd like to see it or subscribe to it. And I'm very frequently leery about letting them know because I'm assuming that their politics are supportive of Trump or the Republican Party. And time and time and time again, I am shocked and surprised when people say, I either used to be a Republican or I voted for Trump, but I'm really interested in hearing you know, what, what you have to say. And I know that the newsletter has converted some people. And it's at first I thought, well, you know, that's just kind of coincidence. But it has happened enough that it's a trend in my life, in people that I'm speaking to outside of my closed little circle of family and friends. So I take a lot of comfort and solace from the fact that I am seeing progress and change and acceptance and willingness for people on the, you know, who held the other view in 2016 to change their mind for 2024. Robert, Robert thank you. Thank, thank you so much, Robert. <laughs> I know you do have to go, but um, you are definitely democracy's dream team. Uh, we'd like you guys to do a podcast together. So can you work on that and make it happen? And we hope that you'll come back in mm -hmm. 2024 um, and we'll continue the conversation. So uh, thank you, Robert. And then I'm going to, Simon, I want you to talk to us yeah. about our coalition. What what do we need to yeah, do to grow I, it and get there? I want to say two things to close out tonight. One is I've written this memo called Get to 55, where I discuss that in in the, you know, when I got into politics for, for permanent, you know, for, for, for real in 1992, 
we had lost five out of six presidential elections, um, three of them by enormous margins. Um, we the only election we won during from 68 to 88 was Carter 76. And even after Watergate, we got 50.1% of the vote, right? So we had this incredible dry run uh, as a party. And, you know, I went to go work for Clinton and part of his strategy was to try to remake the Democratic Party so it could compete in national elections again. And in the eight elections from 92 on, we have won more votes in seven out of eight of those elections. No other American political party has done that in our history. And I know that two of those elections we didn't win, but in terms of where we are with the public in the United States, I mean, if there is a majority party in America, it's us. And it's a center-left country. It's not a center-right country. But importantly, in the first four elections of that eight-election run, we averaged 47% of the vote. So we were still struggling to become a majority party. And then I and a bunch of other folks in about 20 years ago identified two important new demographic opportunities for the Democratic Party, Hispanics and millennials who are starting to flood into our electorate in large and lar larger and larger numbers. And we created strategies for how to reach out to both groups and with the idea of expanding our coalition. And in the four elections since those first four elections, we've averaged 51% of the vote. We've grown from 47 to 51. And there was strategy behind that. There was, you know, there was a calculation that wasn't just happen. And I think we have an opportunity in this election to grow another four points, three and a half, four points to get to 55. I think our coalition is very strong. It's been showing up and we've been winning election after election since Dobbs, right? We're, when we have to vote, we're doing really well and our coalition is strong. But I think we also can grow it. I think we can get another point from Hispanics. We can get, we can increase our youth, the youth vote. And if I could wave one magic wand, it would be to increase youth participation and young people voting in, in American politics. You know, I show in my memo that if you kept 2020 constant and you only changed one thing, you know, Biden won by four and a half, and you just changed one thing in 2024, which is to have people under 45 vote at the same level as their population distribution, which is not a crazy thing. Biden wins by 10 points just by making that one change. I mean, the opportunity with young people is incredible. Third is this never Trump or never, Trump or never MAGA movement, as Robert discussed, is growing. It's And people are getting further loosened from the Republican Party. And then fourth, I think the politics of abortion are going to continue to create opportunities for us to grow our coalition as we've been doing this year. So I really think there is a significant, based on data, based on 31 years doing this full time, we can grow our coalition this cycle, but we have to be open to that. And if I could do one thing, right, as I said, it would be to launch a national youth voter registration campaign to increase uh, dramatically youth participation. But I wanna close with one other final thought, if I could, Kitty, and I'll let everybody go. I have to go to dinner too. Um, I Part of the reason I do all this is that, and I'm going to speak as a Democrat now, is that in the 1940s, uh, when FDR looked at the world that had crumbled around him, he decided to reimagine the world that we were living in, very much the way the founders reimagined what a democracy could be in the 18th century. And he looked at the world and said, how can we build a world based on freedom, for freedoms, and not around dominion and uh, an autocracy and oligarchy? And he extended the American project to the rest of the world after World War II. And that world that FDR built, that America has imagined and built in these 80 years, has created a golden age in human his history. There's never been a better time to be alive than there's been under the, the Pax Americana or this modern, you know, this global liberal order that we call it. Poverty's plummeted, uh, life expectancy has exploded. You know, the opportunities for people of color and women all around the world are unprecedented. More people have lived under democracies during this period than in any other time. And so as you think about the work that you're doing to preserve democracy here in America, to make sure that freedom and democracy prevail, you're also working to ensure that freedom and democracy prevail for everybody in the whole world. Because this export, this American export of this global liberal order, this system is under attacked now by Russia and by China and by other authoritarians who don't like the world that we've invented for everyone because it allows too much freedom and opportunity and it puts oligarchy and autocracy back in the back, you know, on a back heel. 
And so the struggle that we're in right now is a momentous struggle. It's not just about what happened, because if America were to fall, then the global democracy movement would fall with it. We all know that. That's why we're here. But I just want to reflect on the fact that as we need this motivation to go do our work, that the world that we've built, that we're defending, that our country has probably created more opportunity for more people than any other political system in human history. And this is worth fighting for. Preserving this, expanding this, modernizing this is worth the fight that we're all in. And I just know that I, every day when I need the motivation to do my work, I think about the world that we've invented and how we've created this unprecedented golden age in human history. And man, that we all know that we want it to be there for our kids and our grandkids. And so it's great to be here with all of you tonight. And just by closing, just saying thank you for all that you do, for the love of country, for the patriotism you're exhibiting by being part of this amazing organization. And Kitty, just thanks for all that you're doing to round us all up and keep this thing moving forward. Well, thank you, Simon. I mean, it was such a pleasure and an honor to speak with you and Robert, and we are so grateful for your substacks and your leadership. And, uh, you know, we're with you all the way, um, <laughs> and at least until the 2024 election, but I think we might need to go a little longer. Uh, anyway, thank you everyone for coming on the call tonight. It was great to have so many new folks with us and for all the postcards and the letter writing while you're on the call. It was just so great and vibrant and uh, we really appreciate it. Hope to see